0: All right. Well, I think we're good to go. So, um, and maybe not even with a with our traditional complaint about Twitter Spaces. Although, I, it, it doesn't feel right to not complain about it. So, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Worked pretty good last week. Let's uh, hope for the best or whatever. Of course, because I'm saying that it's going to really That's be a disastrous right. week. Um, So, Adam, you want to describe how we got here? Because I, you had a tweet over the weekend that I think got us
1: here. Yeah. So, uh, let's see. So, uh, you know, there's the every so often. Um, Steve can tell me how often because I don't keep track. There's a new Rust release, and then on Twitter, because I've been following more and more of the right folks, um, folks get excited about like little here and there details. And one of the things in the most recent Rust release is let chains. So in Rust, you can say if let and then a pattern equals some variable, and and uh, it was sort of annoying in the past where if you wanted to do many of these things. You had to sort of nest them deep, which was annoying, or you had to put a match, which was kind of ugly. And now you knew Rust chain, so uh, a, a let chain. So that was an example of just like some nice thing that came along without, uh, you know, just, I mean, from my perspective as a dumb user of Rust, it just kind of fell from space onto my lap and now I get to use it. And I feel like that happens a bunch. And it's one of the things I enjoy about Rust
0: yeah amen and i think so well we talked about this specific feature because steve this has been in the works for a long time
2: correct can you hear me i don't know if my microphone is on my phone or if it's on my headphones yeah. we you, you. okay yeah. cool were, were you, uh, yeah just like uh yeah this feature i don't remember exactly how long but it definitely was talked about for a while and that was like for a couple of different reasons uh but in general like this this is like part part of if let was like originally kind of taken from swift in the first place and my understanding is that swift has had a similar feature for kind of a long time so there was some amount of precedent but my recollection was there was a lot of talk about the exact syntax that should be used and that kind of like held it down for a little while because this is not like a particularly complicated feature semantically but you know making sure that you got all the your ducks in a row could take some time so uh yeah totally it like took a little while but it's here and that's cool
1: and I would say one one of the uh, kind of one of the things that is a huge time waster for me, say like late Friday evenings or whatever, is getting deep into some of these Rust features that feel like I really want them, like let let chains or like um, uh, having traits um, have async uh, within them. Yeah, uh, there's stuff like that that uh, some of them just feel like oh like this is a kind of simple feature where we're dealing with with some of the esoteric details. And some of them are just huge, deep rabbit holes uh, where people have literally been talking about them for six years and the level of complexity associated with them it just boggles the mind. Definitely. And, and I feel that, I mean,
0: if let is one of those, like it is not simple. To, if the, the let chains is definitely not simple, there's a lot of edge conditions. That, and it was interesting to, because as do you go back to the history of this
1: thing at all? I mean, it's been around for four plus years. No, you know I, I had been through the history of it you know one of the like 10,000 times I had needed it but I, I've not like refreshed my memory on that it was just interesting in terms of like the odyssey that that the, a feature
0: like this goes on and I for one actually I know that odyssey is extraordinarily frustrating probably for all involved but uh for us those who actually are the like rust users it's uh, I really appreciate the odyssey because they they really make sure that they're not Breaking things. I mean, I think Steve. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the it just seems that l- breakage of existing crates is taken really, really, really seriously. People do not want to break existing crates.
2: Definitely. And, I mean, that's the whole and, point. Like we run this test suite of the entire of all of crates.io as part of the release process. Like it's important. <laughs> which is, I, I, I have to tell you, was great. I mean, it, it, just like the the level. Because I, I feel
0: like this is not always the case. With just software in general, I think often there's not a great deal of empathy with the users, frankly. And it feels like if someone wants to do something and they're kind of, you know, loud enough, they can make it happen in a lot of communities. And that doesn't really seem to be true in Rust. It seems to be that there's like a lot of really thoughtful discourse on these things. And I'm said i sure it is like frustrating for most people most of the time. But the, the artifact, the result of that is really, really good, I feel.
2: Yeah, there's definitely a super huge balance. There's a number of people who have like burned out and quit over the years because of this being so onerous. Uh, And like, it is definitely true. I think something that we see a lot more, it's kind of happening a little bit lately in some cases, but what I see in other places, I mean, like, literally like Guido stepped down from being the BDFL of Python because he added a feature that he really wanted and everybody hated him about it. And he was just sick of taking shit from people. So like, this is definitely a thing that happens uh, in programming language communities in general. And actually, ironically, the like stability thing, one one place that takes that like stronger than you may normally assume is like Ruby, is like actually very weirdly stable in a lot of ways. Oh, well, that, uh, is, that is surprising. I don't mean it's, to sound pejorative. Yeah, is totally. There's a there's a feature in Ruby called flip-flops. I don't know if you've ever heard of this feature okay. or not. Uh, it, it, you basically like you have a range and you use a triple dot, And what happens is as iteration happens, it goes from like returning false to then when it gets within the range, it starts returning true. And then outside it starts returning false again. This is a pearlism that like got put in Ruby that like never got taken out. And so when it was time to talk about like Ruby 2.0, somebody filed a bug that was like, hey, we should finally remove flip flops. And the, the people were like, well, does anyone know if this feature is being used by anyone? And uh, Yatsuke Endo, if I remember correctly, was like, I'm actually one of the users of flip-flops. For example, this. And he posted a Quine uh, written in a <laughs> movie that relied on flip-flops. And- This is a load-bearing Quine. People. Yes. And so Matts went, cool. Seems like people are using this. Never mind, We're not gonna remove it and close the button. So, okay, so Steve, like, yeah. you should explain what, I mean, I,
0: I, you should explain what a Quine is. I, I, if folks don't know what a Quine sure. is. Sure,
2: so a Quine is a program that prints its own source code, basically. And you can also have variants like uh, this. The reason I remember that it's uh, Yatsuke Endo is because he is like kind of semi-notorious for making a lot of these quines. And uh, one of the ones that he did previously was a like, I think it's called a seven quine. It's how you determine like the number of iterations. So step one, print step two, print step three, and then print seven print step one again. So it's kind of like that kind of quine. Uh, He did one where... Uh, it looks like a globe that rotates through those seven steps. And when it gets back to the start again, uh, like, that's what it's like. So wait, it's wait, 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 wait. Like- Is
0: he the one who did the 100-language
2: coin Okay, So,
1: Adam, do you know anything about this, the 100-language coin relay? You told me about this probably, like, maybe, like, eight years ago, something like that? Yes, good memory, because we
0: used it to test uh, LX. So we done a Linux personality for SmartOS, and it was delightful to discover this now 128-language Quine Relay. So Quine Relay is, just as Steve is describing, is a program that generates another program as output. That program generates another program, and, and, and so on and so forth. And then it, the, the 128th program generates the first program as output, which is extraordinary. And it actually causes us to debug some really gnarly bugs in some very strange languages called, I want to say it's, is it G Portugal? R Portugal. Uh, there's a language that's in Portuguese for which all the documentation is in Portuguese, the keywords are in Portuguese, everything about it is in Portuguese. Um, and it was, we had a super esoteric linker issue. We had. But Steve, this thing was amazing. This Quine relay was amazing.
2: Yeah, I'm gonna triple check this same as I'm like 99 percent sure that it was. Uh, well, I, I, well I, the person who did this was definitely. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because there are a bunch of
0: like, because uh, I'm like, how do you do this? And there is an issue where someone's like, "Hey, look, like I'm a researcher, and you've kind of like addressed like an open research question, and I'm I'm very curious how you did this. Can you describe your like your methodology here?" And then he like closes the issue out with like the cherry blossoms are out in Tokyo (laughs) close. And you're just like, uh, okay, is this, is this potentially like an alien life form? Is this from this? I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's otherworldly. So the fact that this person needs an operator does not mean that everyone needs it. I think is the moral of the story. (laughs) I think that's true.
3: Yeah.
0: (laughs) And the flip flop is uh did you ever use it in actual code steve i'm still trying no. to understand like when i would actually want that behavior
2: yeah it's it's i forget why like it was originally put in Perl or whatever but it's it's something about just like when you need to do certain kinds of range operations then it's useful for i, I don't know i've never used it for anything important um well, but the fact that it's got pearl origins is definitely interesting because i would contrast kind of Perl, certainly back in the
0: day, where it just felt like it would add abstraction really quickly without necessarily thinking about the longer term consequences. And then it became a language that had so much abstraction that it became unreadable at some level, because someone could always use a different abstraction to do the same thing.
4: Yep. This, was, this was not super uncommon to use in Perl. And it, it, like, the, the utility is you can say things like, does this number match in within this range? Like, does this IP address match within this range of permitted IP addresses for something?
0: Huh.
4: That, that was a very really, like Perl esque use for this. Interesting.
0: Um. So, but that that's uh, interesting that they. So, in in terms of the way, I guess. So, Steve, the moral of the story was not the Quine relay. It was yeah. that the just the way that Ruby dealt with a, a feature being used versus the way that rust thinks about it I mean were you contrasting that to the rust community no or...
2: i was saying that i think that it's like uh s- different languages have different attitudes towards stability and rusts tend to be extremely on that way and i think some languages even if they have the perception for being the other way at times will be conservative like you can't always like you can't always say that a language like is super stable or is not in all circumstances. Cause like, it just really kind of like depends. And so, right. you know, uh, like Rust tends to take stable features really seriously, but unstable features change all the time. And like, yeah, unstable features aren't in the language proper yet. But like the point is there's a mechanism for language developers to like care and not care. And they, it's clearly divided in rust by the tooling, but, other languages also do this kind of thing. They just don't necessarily have that distinction. And so it can feel like they break a lot of things when sometimes maybe they, like, don't break something you don't notice, as opposed to they do break something you do notice or whatever. Um, yeah, that's so interesting. Just, In terms of, like, because Rust really does have first-class support for experimental features. Right. That's, I think, the difference is that, like, it exists is part of the language mechanism to, to be able to separate this statically and also like cleanly to know
1: what things you're using and not using um yeah it's such a lovely mechanism to to both have that extremely strict like well thought out process for evolving the language but then also have the the like nightly yolo do whatever you want like um i'm sure there's more strictures than that but to have those opportunities i i i think like you can't have one without the other like to to have that strict process almost you know in order to to build that language and, and and do it accretively like requires that avenue for exploration
0: yeah well, and then you also allow you can get some real experience using some of these features and that experience can also be i mean do you remember the, our our mis- misadventures with the exclusive range operator in in match patterns adam no so there is a still i believe experimental feature for uh, t- so rust has the in exclusive versus inclusive range pattern, but the match syntax forces you to use the inclusive range pattern if you're going to use a range pattern in the, in a match arm. Steve, please correct me if I get any of this stuff
2: wrong. I believe that's true. This is like I actually don't use exclusive ranges very often, or, uh, or inclusive ranges very often. So I'm not as familiar with the specific details of some of this deck. But yeah, you're totally right. There's something there. Yeah,
0: it, right. And so you actually, but in a match pattern, you I mean? Well, in a, I, I feel like in a match pattern, I don't very often use ranges, just full stop. Um, but the in a match pattern, you have to have inclusive ranges. There is no support for exclusive ranges. And we had, I don't know if you remember this adam but we had a bug in Talk super early on in Oxide that was due, it is, because the problem is if you support both inclusive and exclusive range patterns in a match arm, it's really easy to screw that up. And Talk had screwed this up in one place and then cut and pasted it everywhere. And it's like kind of hard to read. and It's hard to, to like, you have to be just very, I think, not just rust literate but you have to know that like the double dots is always the exclusive range pattern and this should be double dots equals to match the intent of the programmer does
1: that make sense yeah 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 now now i do remember this yeah and 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 they had enabled some nightly feature
0: they had enabled it and i'm like i don't understand how this this code is broken and then i'm like oh they've enabled this nightly feature they've misused it everywhere and it's it's interesting cuz like this is the old this is one of the very few like language issues that i've kind of been involved in but only as like hey i want to give this uh this kind of report from the field that a project turned it on and misused it everywhere and people should probably think carefully before enabling it and that comment was like hugely downvoted <laughs> People were just like <laughs> burn him burn him he's, he, a witch. he's a witch and the and but what's interesting is that the – I'm like, look, I just think you want to be very careful because there's no way – Lint is not going to find this because these are two separate programmer intents. And it, it, I'm just like, I think it's – but what's interesting is like the, then to watch that discussion kind of happen over the years. And because the the other thing that I love is that Rust, the the Rust compiler – will vector you to an open issue on something that is, like, germane. And the Rust compiler, if you try to use an exclusive range pattern, the Rust compiler will be like, oh, no, you can't use an exclusive range pattern in a match arm, and here's the issue that's open for it. And over the years, this, this just happened, like, this afternoon, but every, like, once in a while, someone weighs in on that issue, being like, the fact that this is not in the compiler just saved my butt. Because I was about to, like, have a bug, basically. Yeah. And I think that that is, I mean, obviously I, I, I've got feelings about this particular issue, but I think like the meta issue of being, allowing people to experiment with nightly features for better and for ill, and then offer feedback on that and have the compiler kind of aware that, oh, by the way, there's this, y- y- what you're using is actually, there's an experimental feature for this. And I think it, it's actually great um, in terms of the way that engenders discussion and, and, and feedback.
2: It it is also important though, I think the point that was made a minute ago that that also this is like tied to not being unstable until it is allowed to be unstable is actually really critical though. And because we have actually have an existence proof of the downsides of this, I'm gonna pick on Haskell for like just a minute here. Uh, Haskell has uh, language pragmas that you can basically turn on features uh, in the language And this was like kind of their, my understanding, I'm not a super expert on the Haskell development process, but my understanding was this was part of the like, we're not sure if we're ready for this feature to truly exist in the language yet or not. So they're turning it on as like an extension. There's also some weirdness between like Haskell, the language definition and Haskell is actually implemented by compilers, but like that's a whole separate sort of thing. But anyway, the point is, is that you can turn on those features in a stable compiler and, like, use them. And this leads to a dial, an explosion of dialects where some people turn on some sets of features in all their projects and other ones don't. And this can also be kind of a problem because there's no guarantee that they'll work well with each other. And so sometimes, like, somebody will, you know, land their favorite feature they've been working on for their PhD thesis or whatever, and then kind of, like, abandon it, and it bit rots a little teeny bit, or like, doesn't work in some combination with this other feature because nobody did. You know, how do you, how do you test the combinatorial explosion of which sets of these features are turned on versus not you know it's just like a hard engineering problem um and so that like but that like happens because people in the same stable can end up using those things and it leads to a lot of like fragmentation and in, in my understanding that's what i've heard and observed people talking about um, so yeah so i do think that both parts are really important the the being able to have a way to try this stuff out and get it in people's hands while also being like, most people can't do that. Like you have to explicitly opt into it. I think is like really significant. Yeah. That's a really important point because, sorry,
1: Adam, go ahead. Oh, Steve, I, I was wondering, I, I, you know, from my perspective, you know, some of these issues I I, I dive deep on, like, for example, when um, like ASM was, was going to be yeah. in, in stable uh, you know, I was definitely Sitting there, refreshing the GitHub issue, like I know that yeah. this is like ridiculous, but <laughs> but like I, I, I was like oh, okay, well, well, another checkbox got checked. Like we're we're four out of five. Like we're gonna get there. Very excited. <laughs>
0: right. it it's breath. like you're watching like Apollo thirteen return to. Oh yeah, like
1: yeah, uh, right. Other people were watching like SpaceX or whatever, but right, this, right. this this was the you're whole, watching
0: as you of know, land is my Falcon Heavy.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but uh, but I, I gotta say look, I don't have a lot of visibility into like what the process like when. When, you know how does how does something go from you know a, a goofball experimental feature or or something that is in flight to something people are using to then folks getting you know the the cabal the the council of elders saying okay we now let's make a push let's get this across the line uh, you know and again with, without maybe the the gritty details of how a, how a bill becomes law but just what's what's the general like. Like, how does something get enough momentum to get across the line?
2: I want that, to think it, about what I want to
1: say. It, totally here. fair, totally fair. Uh, <laughs> I realize that the charge is- You question.
2: sound as if, like, Adam's trying to bribe
0: you. Like, I, how yeah. do we, no. listen, no, no, look, i a, I'll, a charity.
1: I'm not I'll, a cop or anything.
2: I'll do it this way. The fact that you don't know that is a problem in the process that there has not been a lot of appetite for solving lately. And so I myself don't really fully know how that works anymore because things have changed. And so I have not been able to keep up with the way in which they have changed.
1: Wow, it is amazing that you constricted that whole sentence without using the letter E. That was uh, <laughs> that, that was remarkable. No, I, I get it. My apologies, Steve, for, for kind of putting no, you on the no, no, spot no. there. But I, but totally I do fine. think...
2: Uh, but, part of it the, the way i can say it a little bit more is like in the old days what we used to do is have all our comments on github threads so you could find them and now it's all buried in zulip threads which are like impossible to read and find and i think <laughs> is like a, a problem for the rust development process but the language team enjoys sequestering themselves away from everyone else so that's just the way that it is Is how i actually so, feel about it and so i guess i, I
1: do have, i guess i do have some some sympathy for that because it may, may be that like being fully in the open may be distracting, and, there, and especially as you get some, some threshold of popularity, uh, like having people jabber at you about some particular feature or disagree with you about some particular feature being ready or not ready Again, may be distracting. So that is definitely
2: definitely one good reason to do it that way, for
0: sure. I I mean, hearing that that discussion is buried in a Zoom thread is like that when the cartoon about React. I mean, uh, did you just tell me to go fuck myself? It's like I definitely did, Bob. Uh, (laughs) It it feels like yeah, that's not going to be very. But I can. I, I can understand why that's both frustrating, but I can also understand. I mean, that's, that's not totally nonsensical too. I can understand. Yeah.
2: Why the, 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 the being public, like what Adam said a minute ago, the threat, everything being really public is a problem for a lot of people and does lead to burnout. So I'm not necessarily saying that it is universally better. Um, but there's some sort of back and forth balance here. And over time yeah. it has swung in different directions. And, uh, you know, I'm a little less charitable than I used to be. Uh, so that's just, like, the way that it goes. But it is actually it is actually a real problem. And I'm, I'm not going to say that I think that GitHub issue threads are the be-all, end-all, like, way to design a thing. Um, it's just, like, <clears throat> I don't know. I just always think back to, like, the, the, the advice for remote-first work is, like, don't make decisions in chat. Make them in writing. And, like... I wonder how many of those threads will disappear someday. Like, the RFC's repo yeah. is, like, this rich history of programming language development. I've it cited is. the remove the runtime RFC to, like, so many people over the years. And so, you know, I want that stuff to, like, survive. And uh, it is not clear to me how that happens in a world where all the relevant discussion is on Zulip. Um, yeah, so I mean... That's a-
1: that repo is so valuable. It's
2: so valuable, yeah.
1: And and, uh, and also just like, has nerve sniped me in so many ways and kind of broken my heart in some ways. Brian, I don't know if you've had this happen where like you have fallen in love with some <laughs> RFC, kind of like gone, gone, uh, you know, 15, 20 threads deep in it only to find it sort of petered out in like, you know, ni- uh, 2019 uh, and like the people who mm. were championing it sort of moved on. Or... That it's just some like ludicrously fucking complex thing, like, uh, like, like generic associated types or something like that, where you realize, okay, this is actually a ways off.
0: Yeah, the features that have broken my heart—that's kind of interesting because I feel that—and maybe this is where I'm just like a very meat and potatoes Rust programmer—that the stuff that I get most excited about seems to be the
1: stuff that lands. Uh, um but you're but you're on nightly and hubris too. So, but
2: we're we're on nightly only out of necessity. And in fact, I actually have
1: an open PR to literally whitelist
2: the or allow list the features specifically so that we don't add more of them because we actually don't want to be accumulate. We're trying to get unstable as soon as we can. We just can't because there's wired stuff for os development that's not stable yet right so, well it, um it, it, it actually Steve,
0: like, this is something i want to say too that, that you're because you, i think you made a very good point about uh it is good that you can't be unstable and use an experimental feature because it it also puts pressure on those people that are using experimental features like us i mean adam that's part of the reason you're clicking reload and watching the moon landing of of asm hit because, like, speaking for Hubris, like we definitely needed stable asm. Like, we absolutely needed. There's a bunch of stuff that we needed, and that was a big one. Um I don't know. See, what else are we using in
2: in Hubris? I should, the, I should the, big, the big, the big thing enough. that's the big thing that's not immediately being stabilized is naked functions. Um, right. Makes so sense. there's that. The there's,
4: PR for that out actually. It just, oh, sweet. Yeah, but it seems to have stalled the PR, unfortunately. Yeah.
0: It, there's my heartbreaker, Adam. You're asking about the heartbreaker. That might be it.
2: <laughs> totally. Um, but as I and naked functions were the big ones. Um, we did somebody briefly snuck in uh uh what's the destructuring assignments, but that's been stabilized since. And so uh, you know, we're technically not as of my other PR, we won't be having that as an unstable feature soon once I update the tool chain. Um but that that got snuck in there briefly. There is a like CMOS something, whatever feature that's like required as part of the, the LPC 55 shenanigans, uh, that like has to happen. I don't remember as part of Laura's work on the root of trust stuff, like needs a nightly feature that's specific to something that's like deep platform support. Um, but that's really it, uh, mm-hmm. naked functions and inline ASM were the two like big features that were really necessary. And, uh, uh we're technically still, uh, we're using the two of the sub features of inline assembly, um, asm const and asm sim. Uh, sim is being stabilized or has been called for stabilization right now. I don't know where const is at though. Um, yeah.
0: Called for stabilization in a zoop thread that we're not in, but hopefully <laughs> we're on that distant planet, I hope that the uh, the council of elders if these it rules in our favor, I think it'll be good.
3: Uh, Adam, I, would that... Oh, yeah, sorry. Right. May to interrupt? Hi, I, I, as an interested observer, rather than someone with anything enlightened to say, um, it feels like also there are multiple councils of elders, and I, like, never know quite what to read, and I just want to emphasize or, like, reinforce that point, like, I don't want to fish through Zulip chats, like, I really don't, uh, it's not something that I enjoy doing, I don't know what to search for, and, uh, I, I'm... Yeah, I'm totally on board with the idea that actually having this repository of well-structured and well-thought-out documentation where you can kind of read it in your own time, this RFC repository is hugely valuable and I'm just all for it. All right, Steve, um, counterpoint. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> no,
2: I think I think another example of how to solve this kind of problem actually is like LWN. Uh, like yeah. you can have a reporter, right? Like I'm not at, down at City Hall you know listening to every single meeting that happens down there but i do like read the news and i find out when there's a new law that's been passed in my city right and so you could also have like dedicated you know reporters sort of kind of and that's i think because you know the, it's not like the Linux kernel mailing list is also hyper accessible to many people either, even though it's a little more public than maybe a chat thread would be. But like, you know, there's there's other ways like essentially curation to solve these kinds of problems. And so, you know, we'll we'll see what happens in the future to like kind of change maybe, that side of things. You know, so LW totally agreed on LWN.
0: LWN is I mean, is more or less Jonathan Corbett. Um, yeah. maybe we should just convince Jonathan Corbett, like you're kind of you know, hey, like this whole Linux thing is kind of played out why don't you come over to rust and because i agree with you well like that, so his
2: reportage is so good on, he, on. he is currently hiring someone and uh, someone with a rust beat is like on the job application Ooh, uh thing wow. because because of rust being in the kernel he's like this is probably going to be relevant to us in the future so it, it might also just literally be lwn um but uh we'll, we'll I'll see take how that, that goes um, i i pay for lwn even though i haven't used linux in years because it's just so good and you're totally right it's like basically just him, as far as i know or like a very small team uh but it's like super super important it is really important and it's actually
0: right because it's very it's a very good example it's very good reportage in that he, he he's excellent at saying you know this this person says this thing and then this other person had a different point of view He, he doesn't seem to inject his own point of view too much in there, um, which is pretty remarkable because he's often wading into things that are highly contentious.
2: The Linux kernel development community is not known for people not expressing their opinions on things. (laughs) And so it is a a rarity in that crowd. Yes, so totally. But good reporters,
0: because Tim, I obviously agree with you. I mean, Steve might not agree with you about the importance of the RFCs. (laughs) Uh, um, But it it is really, really important. And I found as actually... When I first came to Rust in 2018, I was going into the, those RFCs a lot to understand the origin of stuff. And I think also in 2018, I wish to know if this is still true today, you know, what, four plus years later. But it's certainly in 2018, I felt like you were often ending up in the RFCs to understand why things were the way they were or, or weren't the way that you, you would expect them to be. Um, but I don't know. Steve, do you have any a sense of how true that is today?
2: I mean, I definitely I definitely think that that's a thing that happens over time because as more of stable Rust is a thing, like you need less of that context because like how you do it is the way it's always been done in stable or whatever, right? Like, like as a feature is about to land, you really care about the RFC, but 10 years after a feature lands, you're probably not going to go look at the RFC because it's just like a normal thing you use. And so I would expect that like as the number of things lands and become stable. And as time goes on that it, it will be in generally less and less uh, valuable to people um, in terms of for, what I mean, not to people. I mean like a working Rust programmer will need to know even less than they used to. Um, I, I, all right, so Steve, I'm also curious about your perspective on this because I think, I mean, we're
0: obviously always victims of our own experience. And I, I, this is where I feel like kind of crotchety about my own Rust experience. I kind of feel like trying to learn Rust pre-non-lexical lifetimes versus post-non-lexical lifetimes. Non-lexical lifetimes feels to me w- like a real watershed feature that completely changed the approachability of the language. But it's hard for me. I mean, but it also happened kind of as I was just getting comfortable with the language. So is is that a fair read or is that,
2: is that not accurate, do you think? So – This is gonna sound negative, but I promise it's not actually. I agree with you only because that's (laughs) like what literally everybody else says. I honestly did not need non-lexical lifetimes very often. And it's a thing that's puzzled me for a very long time is like, what is the way that I wrote code different than everybody else where they were running into it constantly? And I was like, basically not really. So I do think it's important. I do think it was a really big change. I think it mattered to a lot of people, but I didn't have that experience personally very much um you sound like you're a sociopath at a funeral like i, I know, understand why everyone else is crying <laughs> but it's like i i
0: understand that you are feeling sadness but this is not an emotion that i maybe it's sort of like data from star trek
2: yeah i get um, it this is like well this is just like there's a couple things like that that have been in rust where it's like okay this definitely is really important to people but like it's just not to me and like that's that's fine that's great i you know as you said just because one person needs or doesn't need a feature doesn't mean it should be added or removed, right? We're talking about the broader population. Um, I think what's interesting about non-lexical lifetimes is, to me, and I think it, I think it's actually, I think it's actually more significant than Rust. Actually, I think that non-lexical lifetimes is actually a significant f- step forward in understanding how programmers think about their craft. Uh, hmm. I'm actually willing to galaxy brain it that that far. And the reason <laughs> the reason is this. The, the non the lifetimes originally implemented lexically, uh, partially I think because it's like easier, but partially because it was believed that programmers truly like understand the concept of scope. That's like a very core thing to what we do, and like that the idea of scope in programmers' minds would be lexical scope. And so it was like considered really, really important that like people be able to grok lifetimes and therefore we wanted to match the way that we thought programmers like mental models kind of like worked. And so that was like, it's very simple. Like you introduce a variable here and then at the end of the curly brace, it's out. And so like, what could be harder than that? Whereas like, if you're trying to explain non-lexical lifetimes in like a more formal kind of way, it's like, well, there's a control flow graph and like the exit point of the control flow graph is the way this works. But like, what we actually, I think, have empirically shown is that programmers don't think about scope in a lexical sense. And so the feature, the thing that's like technically non-lexical lifetimes are far more complicated than lexical lifetimes. But for people, it's actually an easier way to think about it because it matches their mental model of scope more appropriately, which is the last time I stopped using this it should just be done with or whatever and so i think that that's like a an insight into programmer psychology that's like relatively rare that you get those kinds of developments um but uh but yeah i think it like is very interesting for that reason alone yeah okay that is interesting I, i mean it felt
0: honestly when and i think it's interesting that you did not get inflicted by this as much and it may have been that i was coming from c um, and was making a lot of the mistakes that I think C programmers make, where you're just used to having like, oh, I need to have like a back pointer here. And it's like and Rust's like, no, no, please don't. Um, it, and so it may have been that it was really, really frustrating when you had Rust is very upset with you, and because the, you, like you you can't do this because the, the, this variable is still uh, it, it is still being owned, and you're like, no, no, but look computer can't you see the same program that i'm seeing like i'm obviously done with this thing and it felt less like it felt like i was having to, to generate spurious scopes that shouldn't be required in order to force lexical lifetimes
2: totally um, and but yeah but maybe that, that, that's that's interesting that maybe i mean i also write a very like nuts and bolts nothing fancy style of rust in many circumstances largely because you know, a lot of my history is not only writing my own programs, but when I'm trying to teach beginners, you know, I've iterated on the basic syntax like a zillion times. And so I probably just also, you know, you you were like immediately getting into stuff that's like relatively, you know, not complicated in the sense of like the most complicated thing ever, but like I'm often teaching beginners and therefore I'm not using fancy stuff or like my examples are a little more contrived. And so I probably just ran up into it a lot less because you were like, getting useful, active work done in, like, relatively <laughs> complex scenarios right away. Um, so I think that probably has something to do with it, too. It,
0: yeah, I mean, it, and I think that, like, that... I'm trying to think of other features that were... Are there other Rust features that were like that, that were where a, a, either a the state of Rust kind of gave us insight into programmer psychology and... Or the way people wanted to think about the problem
3: uh, versus... I thought... I, ooh, sorry. Sorry, go Thank ahead. You. <laughs> so, just to kind of pick up Steve's galaxy brain kind of thought. The uh, one thing that I really liked about non-lexical lifetimes was that the Rust the community decided that actually programmers were the important thing here, and <laughs> actually we can bend the language to adjust to how people's mental model actually is. Which demonstrates, I think, a lot of humility because there's an engineering challenge to kind of refactor something so core. Like lifetimes to Rust. I guess another aspect of that would be kind of a real emphasis on high quality error messages, would be sort of similar. Like, compare, if you compare the error messages from, say, 2018 to now, I think most people bumping into things are going to have a better time today than they did a few years ago.
0: Absolutely. Definitely. I agree with that.
2: Yeah. And that's Adam, actually you... a similar, yep. I was actually, that butts right into what I was going to say is another example of a feature. It's like this sort of kind of is the debate over the syntax for async await was largely talked about and in ways of like, how are people going to understand this? And one of the things that sort of helped get it over the line was like, no, we're going to parse the JavaScript syntax for async await and recommend our new weird syntax for async await. And that will help solve that problem for when people's mental model of how it should be is like the the other one from a different language. And so you solve that problem via a good error message and caring about error messages because you're trying to focus on the programmer and the way to think about stuff.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a great example, Steve, because I think that the amount of work that I'm sure went into turning that into a coherent error message was, was non-trivial. And then beyond like the some of the technical implementation, the thing that, I mean, we haven't really talked much about the Rust community, but that's, that's the other thing I love about Rust so much. And um, so I, I wrote a blog post about my first use of rust you know like uh like six years ago or something and i didn't even look back until you know when when steve started steve you joined oxide about like two years ago now a little little over two yeah jeez it's nuts no so and i think like shortly after steve started i for whatever reason i went back to this hacker news thread and steve's like comment was number one being like hey i'm like sorry this was tricky like what, what would have been more helpful? And, of course, I didn't see it until it was much too late to be useful in that regard. But, like, I thought that was a, a, an amazing example of just, like, how much Steve in particular, but the Rust community cared about making this thing, like, good and useful and intuitive and, and overcoming obstacles to understanding.
0: Yeah, and so, and this was in 2015, Adam, that you did your first, and and actually, Steve, it was funny because I Adam was the first person that I knew who really went into Rust, who was like I would view as like you know one of my peers and someone who's going to have a, a pragmatic approach. And I remember reading that blog entry and being like, man, thank God Adam did this. So now I'd never have to touch this language ever in my life. Because this <laughs> is so clearly a horrific experience. And then Adam's blog entry is like, and in conclusion, I look forward to using Rust again. I'm like, Adam, what get, 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 read your own blog
5: <laughs> entry? It's
1: like, what, you're in I a know, bad relationship with this. I thing. know it's such a weird experience, but I because I, I, you know, at the time I so I was writing uh at the time, I was asking a screening question. I've, I, I've, um, as people who uh, I've worked with or have interviewed with me know, I basically have like two questions I've been asking for like the last fifteen years, and one of them is a screening question that just to cut, that we would ask at a couple of different companies. That's like write a anagrammer and do whatever do it in whatever language you wanted. And we had some interns who like were, like well I, I'm going to write it in Rust. And I was like okay don't don't show me, but I'm going to go try this. And I went and tried it and it was, it was kind of brutal and it was brutal. And I think in the ways that like dummies go to learn rust, which is just to be like, okay, I know how to program. Like, don't tell me like, I don't need to wait for the translation. I'll just like write this code. Like what's the syntax? Like it's probably like something else I know. And I, I ap- can,
0: can, can I just get something out of my head right now that is just driving me crazy earlier today, you replied to a tweet of someone is like, when do you see something that automatically you think of the suspensions. And that is now in my brain. And it's like, so like literally as you're speaking this, like the image that comes to mind is Pilot Bob stepping on ranks.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, that's that's exactly what it was. That was exactly what it was. But I think as I had time to sort of think about what I had done, uh, you know, and, and sort of like done the thing that I should have done, when I started writing the program, which was to appreciate the differences of the language, I, I realized the the unique concepts of ownership and of lifetimes and, and these kinds of things that I had never seen in a language. And if I had paused before writing to try to understand, uh, you know, like if you read Steve's book, like he takes pains to like explain to you, uh, if you just skin past those things, that that's what caught my eye. That it was like, this was a new thing. This wasn't like a language I had used before.
0: Yeah, and I think that actually, the, you know, I love you. You got a couple of great lines in there um, where I, you have you describe uh, moving from anger into bargaining.
1: Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if people still. Maybe, I mean, I know oh, that Rust I, oh has gotten god. so much better.
0: It's gotten so much better, but, but oh god, uh,
1: Brian, have you written any async Rust?
0: yes and yes. Okay. Yes, and I know
1: exactly where you're going. So so there there is definitely like a, a stages of grief, but there's also like do you ever have the compiler is like, hey, uh, this will all work if you use the static lifetime? <laughs> you're totally, you're like, oh, oh totally. fuck, like what have I done that like this will only work if you can promise me that nothing will change for eternity. It's like okay, well I can't promise that. Okay, fine. Like I've I've messed up more fundamentally. Just commit. Uh, uh, why Why can't you just commit? Know, why can't I just marry all my data structures if I love them so much?
0: Yeah. Adam, <laughs> what I thought you were going to say is, like, when the compiler's like, actually, this will work, but you need to change that to be mutable. You're like, okay. And case that's mutable. The compiler's like, what the hell are you doing, you dumbass? Yeah. Now nothing works. And you're just like, okay. Oh, it's like,
1: oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You do, you do have the, I mean, still have these moments. And I remember, I, even at the time, like the Rust compiler being like, try this. And it's like, who told you to do that? Yeah. <laughs> like, what? Why did you think that was going to work? stupid? It's like, yeah, like, why are you hitting yourself? Right.
0: And it's so- actually, it's like, and then it's like so earnest and helpful about the way it's telling you that you like lost your mind that you're just like in in some ways it's even like in some ways it'd actually be like a little bit easier if it were just like look you're being a dumbass like you just do not like look i'm sorry this is the fourth time you
1: tried to do this i don't think you understand how this program works at all like i'm just gonna like i'm letting you know but but there's nothing like async to help me like expose my ignorance and also (laughs) to like vomit out some like error (laughs) message that i need to like full screen my terminal in order to even like have a hope of understanding what's going on. What was Dave's mess error message early? Do you remember the one that he had that was, that was like
0: 1300 lines long? (laughs) They get an error message that was just like, I I mean, yeah, the, it is absolutely monstrous, the kinds of things. And that has all gotten better, but it is still, I think it highlights that. I mean, you do. And actually I, I, I really appreciated the, um the, um the programming rust book is and see i know you're emphatic about this too uh, in the rust programming language but just like the need for early programmers to change your mental model do not if you walk into rust with your existing mental model it, it's gonna hurt like it, and if you just try to get a doubly linked list working it's not going to end well and you're going to be in some in the
2: wrong parts of the language basically in, in the in language. the super oh, good. No, no, you go ahead. In, in the super old days, it was really common for C or C++ people to join IRC and be like, hey, I'm trying to write this program that's like clearly fine, but the compiler won't let it work. Uh, what do I have to do to get the compiler to shut up? And you have to be like, well, what would happen if that got moved to another thread? And they'd be like, oh. Like, yeah, that's what the compiler is telling you is that you were actually like about to do something that does not actually work. Uh, just because you thought it worked doesn't mean it actually works. Uh and there it was a really big predictive power, like basically the the way, you know, it's like uh it's like a very sort of like stoicism kind of thing, right? Like you, you can either you can either try to change the world or you can change the way that you think about what's coming in. And so like we'd see people be successful if their reaction to that was, oh, neat, huh, versus like well, I know better. There's no thread there. There's never going to be any thread there. Can I, how would I get the compiler to shut up?
1: And it's yeah. like, okay, like to- you're totally. not going to have a good time actually. Totally. When, when um, Rusty is like asking you questions about your program, it's not bad questions, right? These are the questions that nobody was asking me about my programs before. <laughs> and it sort of either worked by accident or it didn't.
2: Yeah. You know? and, and what, the trick run is run to run make sure it's right room. often enough
1: that you trust it. Because if it's not
2: right often enough, then, you know, like, like the thing with the, the lifetimes that Brian oh, yeah. was talking about earlier, then you become frustrated because you do know better than the compiler. And like the more that you can get, the, the better the compiler is at actually being correct in those situations, the more you're able to trust it. And therefore, the more you're able to like offload your mental capacity to it. But if it doesn't work, then like, you know, that, then you're a, it's a problem.
4: Um, Look, that, that learning curve can be near vertical though. And, and it can be a serious gut punch to the ego to have to absorb what the Rust compiler is telling you. And I've seen this multiple times places now And my last project at Google when I convinced you know folks early on to switch from C++ to rust you know we found ourselves writing trying to write C and rust and then being very frustrated for two or three or however many weeks until we kind of were like okay we need to let go of this and it's just like I can no longer wrap my identity around being a C programmer and like that's got to be okay and once we kind of did that then we were all right but yeah we had the, we had the issue where people were like this code is perfectly defined. How dare the compiler argue with me? And the flip side of that is that I've seen extremely experienced Unix people turn around and say, I don't understand why this language exists. It doesn't do anything that C doesn't do. And it forces you to sprinkle unsafe and mutt all over the place. And it's like, well, you're you're thinking about it wrong. It, It actually is very frustrating.
0: Uh, yeah, well, there's actually a pretty good hacker news thread that I think that Adam, you'd seen over the weekend, right? The, the um, on learning Rust. I actually, and I think as and as Steve, it's been interesting for you to kind of watch like the broader programming community change its disposition really towards Rust, because it feels like now there is a much more. I think people are 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 much more embracing of the mental model shift than they were two, three, four, five years ago. Is that a is that a fair read?
2: I think that's true. I think it, it also like people, you know, you kind of go through like crossing the chasm is always like at the forefront of my mind that that whole thing is like really essential to the way I view a lot of things. And so I think that it's, it's not even so much that people are more amenable. It's just that like now that the value has been demonstrated and now that like you can get a job and now that there's like projects that you care about that you want to contribute to where Rust exists more people are willing to put in the effort to learn something new because they know what they're going to get in return. You know, like in the old days, you basically were getting like hope, uh, you know, maybe someday I'll, I'll be able to get a job in this language and therefore I'm going to learn it because I like it for other abstract reasons. And I have some sort of other motivation. And I think now we're getting to the point where there's a much more like meat and potatoes reasons to like learn the language that's not you know, I'm a programming language theory nerd and this affine type system is cool or whatever. And so I think that's also part of it too, is like not even necessarily sentiment changing. It's just that like, there's, it is, it is more clear that the cost benefit is maybe worth it. And therefore people are more willing to even entertain it in the first place. And could you elaborate on what you mean by crossing the chasm? There's a, there's a book, there's a business book called crossing the chasm. And it's about, how like how disruptive technologies achieve like succeed in the market or whatever, something vaguely along those lines. And there's this diagram that's basically like a bell curve, except for at the first quartile, there's like a there's like a gap. And so it's basically like there's sort of like six or seven or eight cohorts of users, and each of those cohorts uses a technology for different reasons. And they start using a technology at a different place in its life. So the leftmost are like the extreme innovators or something. I don't remember. This is a business book, so it's full of silly jargon. But like those are the people that like use a thing just for the sake of using it because they enjoy using it. And they'll like always try new things because the fact that it's new is a good enough justification on its own. And the far other side is like the late, the late majority or the laggards, I think is the term they actually use. And those are folks who like, you know, that Java thing is probably used enough that I'll start using it now. Like the, you know, like (laughs) a a COBOL programmer that's still writing COBOL today that's like getting around to trying those newfangled things that have been successful for 10 or 20 years because they just, you know, are much more conservative with their technology choices. And the trick is that a lot of things die before they can like cross the chasm. They can jump over that gap between the like people who, are interested in a thing early because they see the potential and the people who like just want to get their job done for the day and don't really care. And it's like, how do you, how do you get your thing? uh, Or the trick is to get your thing from that early audience to that, like bigger, more normal audience. And once you've done that, you're successful and you're going to exist forever. But like lots of technologies sort of die trying to get to that kind of like uh, you know, larger group of people. Um, It's much more, if you look at the diagram, it's like, very visual so it's like kind of easier to see how this works out but i hope that verbal description is no, good enough that's a great description um, of course it, it natural follow-up question when did rust cross the chasm yeah well see that's like kind of an interesting thing because you you don't one of the tricks is like you don't really necessarily know until like a lot later um and so i think a lot of people would like cite like rust like I've got my a
0: the answer to this question, so my, I'm very curious for your answer.
2: My answer to this question is actually the MVP of async await dropping. Okay. Um, um, and that is because while everybody, not, I shouldn't say everybody, while there are a lot of criticisms of async and like there's still a lot of work to do there and like all this other stuff, um, if you look at the actual numbers of people reporting on the survey, like what they use Rust for and what they use Rust for at work, it is network services. And it doesn't matter how many people on Hacker News say that you shouldn't write network services in an unmanaged language because it's the wrong tool for the job. A lot of people actually do think it's the right tool for the job. And async await landing was a significant step forward in getting people to be able to write those things. And it honestly is still one of the biggest user groups of Rust just purely by the numbers. And I don't think it feels that way or it's reflected in the social side of things as much, but that's like the, the actual situation is that that's what Rust is being used for in many, many, many cases. Um, so I think that was the the real point at which it became more useful to a lot of those folks uh, is because everything touches the network now. Basically, he says when his day job is writing firmware, <laughs> for not connected to the network. Well, um, um, uh,
5: for what it's worth, that was actually the point for me as well. And and you know I'm trying to not turn this into an advertisement for what we do, but um, we use Tokyo and Axum and Tokyo Console and Postgres data persistence and we could not have built what we were building without rust and without the compile times without the lifetimes without the compile time reliability it actually was a thing where a lot of us were formerly go programmers and rubyists and we kind of said we could not have built this without this and and like i am trying to like put a positive spin because i do agree with you steve there's definitely like some work to do and the ergonomics aren't that great like uh for instance Right now, we bumped everything out to factory, which is kind of like Sidekick for those of you who've used it. And uh, we're, we're sort of spawning off jobs when the threads get too big. Otherwise, in debug mode, some of our async threads will kind of explode. And, and like, and like we've seen it in Tokyo Console. We like, you know, sort of watch them kind of like balloon a little. Um, but it, at the same time, it's those kind of moments where like, uh well, maybe that should have been a go routine, but. All the other benefits and everything else uh, that come along with it has certainly been like a, we could not have done XYZ thing without that. So the MVP was definitely there because, you know, a lot of us were kind of like silently in the back waiting. We're like, okay, we see the embedded use cases, we see the C CNC++ replacement scenarios, but we're kind of sort of like, you know, when can I use this like my everyday like backend or full stack job? and 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 I would say that that at least for my channels was certainly where I saw heightened chatter.
0: It's like, Steve, are you playing a nineteen forties radio sound effects real? No, <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> I, uh, I... That's like,
2: <laughs> I'm like waiting for the door to open and close the footsteps. The... <laughs> I I have I uh, I make I make tea in mason jars and put it in my fridge. And so I had I'd set that up right before this happened. And so I was just putting the can, the lids on and putting them in my refrigerator. And I didn't realize you could hear that. So my bad, but no, 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 uh, no. no, no. no it was like but it was like
0: crystal clear sound effects. It was actually re-
2: so sorry. Amazing.
5: No, 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 no you're fine. I, I, I mean, I make Chemexes in the morning and everyone's always like, why is Nick's video off? And then I'll have to like put in chat like I'm like making a pour over and it's going to taste terrible. But I'm going to like it anyway. So I,
0: yeah, I, totally. I've totally been there. Yep. <laughs> So that's interesting, but Nick, you've got the same feeling as Steve. And Adam, I think you I wonder if you have that same thought, because I mean coming into Oxide, you're definitely like, look, I can see Rust for these kind of lower like low down the stack, that makes tons of sense. Higher in the stack, I think it I might make less sense, but that's yeah. something that you
1: since, since no, kind of changed your thinking. Of. No, totally. So so when I joined so I I you know, I wrote my first Rust in twenty fifteen. I had the dates right wrong, but then I, I didn't really do anything with it again like when i when i started my last company in in uh in whatever it was uh like 20 <laughs> 2016 uh i know it's nineteen ninety two. yeah exactly it's moving quicker than i thought the the choices were sort of like go and java and then uh, i'll say without embarrassment we we chose java but it like those felt like the right answers for the kinds of problems that we were solving um and it is now but, when we can talk about your love affair with antler <laughs> oh I, I do love Antler. Antler is wonderful. I'm happy that we could have we could have a whole week long of shows on Antler. I'd be happy to do that. No, I think Antler's really cool. Antler uh, is right seems really uh, cool. So um but but you know I, I liked Rust. I like I liked Rust the first time I tried it and I was fired up coming into Oxide and was you know reading books on it and stuff like that. But I did come in and in week 1 I I was like, well, you know, why are we like for say the web layer or whatever? Maybe it makes sense to to use something like java or maybe it makes sense to use another language but i would say that it, it didn't take that long to feel like the the perceived obstacles associated with rust were were far outweighed by all of the obvious benefits and that just you know you can trick yourself into saying like well you know if i'm 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 using these these tinker toys with with java and i, I can't get myself into these kinds of problems but you clearly can't and you're bringing on a whole yeah. host of other problems with, with a garbage-collected language. So, um, you know, I, I think that I am, I am no longer claimed to be unbiased. I'm hugely biased in favor of Rust. Like I, 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 And maybe this is as good time as any, but, like, I didn't, you know, people talked about loving programming languages. Like, I, I worked with someone who loved Java. And I didn't think I was capable of loving a language. Like I didn't think that was a thing <laughs> that I had in me. And and now I am it's like, grew have- three <laughs> sizes larger that day. That's
3: right. That's
1: right. But like no, I just thought it was like, no, no, you just pick the right tool for the right job and like love has like I don't know, like like sometimes Python's the right answer, I guess, or Java or or even Bash. Although I hope our colleague Dave Pacheco doesn't hear me say this because he has told me that Bash is, is never the right answer for anything. Unless you're trying to signal to people that you don't take a, a problem seriously, that is true. Uh, yes. Okay. Well, fair enough. But you know, I still use Bash because sometimes I, I use Bash this morning. I but, got a gnarly Bash at the now, right now. I, I gotta say, like a, a lot of things are, are looking like a rust shaped nail for me now. Like I, I think that I'd I use it in a lot of different contexts uh, that that a couple of years ago or two and a half years ago didn't necessarily seem appropriate. Um, I, but in, ter- in terms of like the the crossing the chasm. I think it, I don't this is not going to be as, as pinned down in terms of a timeline, and Brian, I'd be curious to your answer. but I felt like a, you know in that sort of early 2020 time frame, I went from thinking, you know, a couple people are using this, or, or it's being used here and there for sort of the inner loop of whatever, to, to looking up and seeing that anyone who was doing serious systems programming was kicking the tires on the rust or, or using it in a very serious fashion. And that damn sort of broke. It feels like right around that time. Now I know that I'm biased, and I'm sort of like now getting into Rust. But it feels more and more like around that time frame was when the the folks doing these kinds of systems problems really kind of jumped in. Well, and th- and that would dovetail with Steve's async await timing, honestly.
0: So that would be um that's that's interesting. And so yeah, it,
2: it, it doesn't I, have to be a feature, right? Like, because we're talking about basically like timelines of different populations of groups and so like i i'm just saying that i think that's like around when it was but i definitely think 2018 was like a bike shed year or a watershed year some yeah. sort of shed
1: yeah, let's bike- talk about <laughs> what is it bike
2: shedding when you talk about which kind of shed it is is that the that's right that's right but, that's right. Uh, but like yeah, like, our I, bike shed moment no <laughs> yeah i feel like around 2018 yeah. for whatever reason was like when stuff like really cemented itself and started taking off even more than it was previously you, you know i got on the internet moments before the eternal september of 1993
0: i got on the internet in the fall of 1992 so the fact that i got in the rust in 2018 right before crossing the
2: chasm i think that, that's uh i'll take that um yeah. I I, I also the last thing I want to say about crossing the chasm. I think it's really important that programmers understand where they fall on that on that line, and that can change for different things too. Because like you know, I was a super super early adopter of Rust, but like there's like I I don't think I've like ever written a Docker file, for example. So like I'm like an extreme laggard on Docker, but I'm like super early in Rust, and I felt much better about like various technologies when I understood how I felt about how early of an adopter I wanted to be and recognizing that other people are in a different stage in that area. And like a lot of, a lot of arguments happen between people who like have an early adopter mindset versus like majority mindset. And then they talk past each other because they don't realize they're both getting out of or not getting out of the situation, what they wanted just because they're coming from a different place in the first place. So I think it's also helped me deal with a lot of like, arguing online about stuff uh by like knowing that thinking about that mental framework and figuring out where i fit into it for whatever technology we're talking about
0: yeah that's interesting and i also think that i mean you're making an important point too that that where you are in that curve may be more of a function of the problem you're solving and less of a function of you as a technologist that as a technologist you may be an early adopter in one regard and then actually a late adopter in another regard and that doesn't make you a dullard or a laggard or or you know what have you but that that uh, it, it, the, and being kind of self-aware of that is 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 important, um, Luke. Man, I wanted to get you in here because you've been in the Rust community for a really long time, and I like. Did you have a sense of when the when the chasm was crossed um, to the degree that I think I think we have crossed the chasm? I would assume.
6: Sure. I mean, I feel like a lot of my time has been spent lurking. <laughs> like early on, I did like do a lot more like when I interned there and other stuff um but then after that kind of went away you know doing work stuff life stuff but kind of just keeping an eye on it in the background like just playing around with it myself um but I yeah I do think around 2018 right when async the mp mvp was starting to land was like I think this could actually be a thing that I could convince someone at work that I could use. I actually remember writing like right before that release was cut, like some little project with like Async, Tokyo and all that stuff and then showing my manager at the time is like, look at this. It was like, you know, I did this in like, you know, a week and it does so much better than what we already have (laughs) kind of thing.
0: Okay, Uh, that's interesting. That that is an interesting kind of acid test when you can go to a new technology and kind of catch up to where the extant technology is in a a remarkably quick period of time. I do think that's a kind of a hallmark to when something is becoming really real. Yeah. And so for me, because I actually, like, the thing that really drew my attention to Russ, after, I mean, it was like, so Adam's horrific experience, like never touching that. Um, And... but then the, when, honestly, Steve, and I don't know if it would have been like maybe 2016, 2017, when was the Green Threads removed? The
2: 2014.
0: Right- 2014. So that's before yep. Adam Interstead? It was before 1.0, yeah. Because that to me, I thought that's a super interesting decision. I, the, because it felt very pragmatic. And I mean very much aligned with my own experience and wisdom. But it felt, and I, I'm sure that that was controversial at the time. Was that controversial at the
2: time? Uh, yes and no. It, it, it definitely...
6: Uh, I think it like, depended on who
2: you were talking
6: to. Some
3: people yeah. were all for it.
2: <laughs> it, you know, it was also largely spearheaded by someone who was often the source of controversy. And so I think also some people were colored by non-technical factors when talking about that at the time. If I remember it's... correctly, um sorry, Luke, when you were saying something, and I said something,
6: oh no, yeah, I just I just remember thinking, depending on who you asked, like maybe some of the more fam- people familiar with node kind of stuff were like, yeah, no, segmented stacks, green threads, that's great, versus like people who wanted to you know run it on the p s three or what have you were just like, uh, we want libnative, basically." <laughs> And then the difficulty is like, well, how do you deal with like segmented stacks when you have like you know inline assembly and other, other parts of the language that make it really difficult. Yeah,
2: every language that's used segmented stacks has eventually removed them at some point, is hey, my understanding, basically. Yes. Uh, let alone, you know, obviously a lot of people still do green stuff, green thread stuff. But I think segmented stacks is definitely uh, an idea whose time has gone uh, for sure. It, it it's just it's
0: the details and the reason that it kind of turned my head Although, like i guess i found out about i've got the chronology wrong here but the reason that turned my head is because it does reflect people really trying to use a system um and i think that things will kind of happily use green threads when they are actually not really getting into the mechanics of getting something that is going to run for a long period of time and run robustly but when you are like there's so many edge conditions it feels like it's such a good idea and it's such a long tail of disasters that are really really hard to mitigate um that it it, it th- that to me was like okay wow this is actually uh getting real and is, is going to be use of real systems i came into rust for whatever it's worth in the, in I, i've been meaning to look into it for maybe six months 12 months by the time i got into it um the although one of my coworkers, adam uh leventhal's me gloriously by maintaining that I, I, I that I was deriding Rust to him in 2013 or 2014, mm. Matt, smiling wherever you are, exactly. I, so he I, I, he had cackled uproariously when I fell in love with Rust because he felt that it was a grand comeuppance, and maybe it was. Um, but the I felt like I was looking into Rust out of somewhat of, out of desperation, honestly, because I felt like the I just couldn't find a home for myself, and I'm like, if it's not going to be if this is like my last best hope. You're talking about like like coming to Rust out of hope, Steve. Yeah. Um, and actually, I think since then, the, the 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 environment has actually improved. I think that there are other languages. And I actually think this is in part due to the success of Rust is that Rust has shown that there's a space there and other languages like Zig are starting to be in that space. And I think that that's actually really healthy. I think that that's a good thing. I'm not sure your your take on that, but I, I liked having uh, having more languages experiment with different ideas. I think it was good. One Definitely thing is I wa- very good. I, one yeah. thing I, did, I, I also wanted to get to, um, in addition to kind of pulling people across the chasm, I, I wanted to just because I know I'm going to learn something. I wanted to hear people's like small features that have been added over the last couple of years that are really meaningful to their quality of life. Um and I've got a handful of these, but i I imagine other people have got got ones that I have not heard of or I have missed. Um the I I, I mean we we talked about inline asm. Um do you
1: use const generics, Adam? Is that something that Yes I do? Uh <laughs> in in a way that like is totally different than you guys like I, I remember in in hubris you guys being very fired up for that. And I got fired up for it in a really dumb way for uh, like an open API uh, SDK generator that I've built. And this this is such a weird use of Rust or like such a, I don't know. When people think about Rust, it's not for like calling like dumbass REST APIs or whatever, Um, but like JSON schema. Okay, I'm losing everyone like by the second. um, Let's you say, define an integer that is like a multiple of seven or fucking whatever. So I, I use the const generic to define that. Oh, nice. I didn't realize
0: that story was going to end so quickly. Yeah, I thought you're, that was...
1: like, you're like, oh, geez, this sob story is going to go on and on. No, it's just like it lets you define a type that's like, here's a number that has some weird properties. Like it needs to be, huh. be between 12 and a 1,000 and a multiple of seven. And const generics are a way that like I don't have to – kind of do a bespoke type for each one, or it can be structural in the type rather than, um, you know, just like an input parameter or something like that. Oh, that's right. Cool. And that's in progenitor. That's right. Oh, that's what neat. need. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. So you, all right. Well, that answers that question. You definitely do. What what are some other little ones that you, are there other, (laughs) I have another one that like only I give a shit about, which was, uh, like I write, I, I, I'm not sure how to write Rust is the first way I'm going to say this, which is I think different people write Rust differently. Like, I, I you know, I've looked in, and it's Oxide is such a great case, and most of our repos are open, but you can find a bunch of Rust code that looks like C code. And uh, certainly, like, if you're in my neck of the woods, not that I'd recommend it, you can have Rust code that sort of feels more like, I guess, Go or Java or something like that. And you can have lots of, like, you can have folks who, Want to use a for loop for every everything, and you get a folks who want to use a like for each on an iterator for everything.
0: Is this an intervention? Uh,
1: I, which one are you? Which I, one, I, you I, know I, which one I. <laughs> I okay, I've been no, trying I'm, to get better. I've been trying to be more like I'm trying to get more mappy folding. But I, you know, I, no, no, the, I'm the, I, what I'm saying is I'm way too mappy folding to the point. Where this is an um,
2: intervention.
0: This is an intervention. Where, Look,
1: I'll try I'll change. I can get better. I will use more I, I will stop using for loops. So
0: no, so, the so,
1: so no. So like I, I'm to the point where seriously, if I have to name a variable, I think I've fucked up. Or if I have to have something be mutable, I feel embarrassed. Although you used
2: list. into iterator on option.
1: Yes. So that's exactly See, what I'm so that's what I'm going. So not only have I used <laughs> iterator on option, Steve, but I am using the bool has a uh, then then yeah yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. so yeah. i've been i've been using a bunch of bool then so that i can launch myself from the pedestrian world of of, <laughs> of like integral types into the lofty world of things i can i can uh try with a capital t or iterate over or or, or reduce I, I, i'm saying I, this is a cry for help not an intervention brian no, I feel like because I I am just not.
0: I feel that I myself. I try. I'm trying to be more mapy folding, um. And the and Clippy is trying to help me for whatever it's worth. Clippy is Clippy's like you moron. This should not be affordable. Like, <laughs> do
1: you ever, do, ever get, do you ever Clippy recommend something and you're like okay fine Clippy let's do it your way and then the compiler's like this is terrible <laughs> like this this is garbage. Come when, on. mom we, and dad are fighting like, exactly. I mean, exactly. <laughs>
0: Don't tell me that Clippy told you to do this. I mean, if Clippy told you to jump <laughs> off a bridge, would you do it? Of course not. Yes, I would. <laughs> actually, I probably would. Actually, I would go to Steve and I would say, hey, Clippy's starting to jump off a bridge. That doesn't sound
7: right. Could someone please? Uh, no, you really should be jumping off a bridge.
0: Okay, fine. Jump off a
7: bridge. Uh, I think it think oh, actually touches on something interesting that has been sort of a, a detraction I've had for Rust. I just want to start off, off the bat. I'm a huge fan of Rust. I wish it nothing but success. But I think... When Adam said that there's a lot of different ways to write Rust, I think that's totally true in terms of what you end up with. But as a practice, I think one of the reasons that it's hard for Rust or was hard for Rust to jump over that chasm is because it kind of shifts the line about what a programming language is. Because I I don't know anybody who Hmm. understands how to write Rust without Rust Analyzer and Clippy. There's a sort of Esperantoism of Rust where it's not really... The language that anybody writes sort of unassisted or it's not their sort of like uh first language it's not the thing that they really think in they have sort of a, a conversation with their tools in order to construct the program i, I don't think yeah. that's necessarily negative but it's very interesting
1: it's a great point and i think that one that sort of leans on modern like what we can do in a way that then becomes structural but also important I'll, I'll, i mean i'll go one further which is when I'm looking at code reviews in GitHub, I sometimes find the Rust unintelligible, because it's like, you know, let variable name equals whatever, and I and I am desperate for Rust analyzer to tell me the types of everything. Like I'll, I'll sit there and assign, uh, like assign things to types just so that Rust analyzer can help me figure out what you know what's coming out the other end. Um, but but you're right that the, these types have become extremely. I mean these these tools have become extremely load bearing for how I guess how everyone liked rice Rust. Yeah, I don't better IDE
2: support was like one of the number one things on the survey every year for a very long time. Um, yeah, for exactly that reason. I, I like syntax highlighting, which I also don't don't
0: use. I have learned like not to bring this up in mixed company that I <laughs> don't use Rust Analyzer. I I, I I not pejoratively. I just don't end up. Uh, I, I, it is part of the reason that I'm not like mappy foldy uh, always because I, it, it is easier. Although, again, I'm trying to get better about that and trying to really like rewire my brain around it. Uh, and it has, it does, I think, yield better code. But, but true, I think to your point, I actually do think Rust is becoming the way I think about a problem. Rust has become the way I think about it. I should say, I, it is my first language at this point. And actually, I went back to write, I at least I hope it's my first language because when I went back to write C recently, it was uh, otherworldly. It was a very
1: strange experience. Very like, geez, ha, okay, how do I pattern match again? Like, how? What's oh, the syntax for that? I just feel like with C, I feel like I'm
0: going like cave diving, where I'm just like, okay, I've got to like triple check all the equipment. I've got like this is 100 percent on me, and a lot of people die down here, so I need to be, you know, well, I'm not in the rust swimming pool here, where that, like nothing is going to help me out. I need to be very. Uh, the compiler is not going to help me out. I've become very accustomed to the compiler helping me out.
4: Does anybody feel that learning Rust has made them a better C programmer? For sure,
0: no wow. question has made me a better because, it, and that is Dan. Why I'm so I've got such trepidation. And I, mean, I've, I said this early on with Rust that the one of the things that we don't talk about enough with Rust is the integer safety. And the, uh, one of the, the most serious vulnerabilities in D-Trace was an integer safety issue um, that Lint did not catch, the compiler did not catch. No one like helped me. I felt like abandoned by everybody because and I had done something that is extremely common in C where you're saying if bounds plus size is less than my limit, then it's good to go. And it's like, nope, not necessarily. And no one is actually gonna actually check on that. Um, and if, if, if you have uh, integer unsafety uh, so I do feel it's made me a better C programmer although also a more cautious one as a result
4: Dan do you feel it's made you a better C programmer? Oh, definitely definitely yeah. and so I, I went to an exercise a few years ago rewriting MIT's xv 6 operating system in Rust and you know having and, and, and that was really il- lab. it was a very interesting exercise because having the C code next to the Rust code was fascinating because I saw bugs in the C code that only that I would have never seen had I not actively been writing in Rust yeah. and thinking about those things.
0: So, Dan, do you have some little features that have been added over the years that you particularly like?
4: Um, well, so it's weird. I've spent the bulk of my time writing Rust code, writing bare metal code for large-scale systems. So, I never... Like, it's weird. Async uh, was mentioned earlier, and and it just mystifies me. because It's totally foreign to my experience. When I got to Octod, I found myself writing a very different type of Rust than I had been writing. But definitely, Asm, oh my goodness. The new Asm, well, it's not new anymore. It's like four or five years old now. But the the, the sort of stabilized Asm syntax changed my life. All those weird links that you had to put in with the GCC style, LLVM, inline Asm stuff, and it's like, okay, you put an M here and I think that means a memory operand, but nobody really knows because this is all just kind of strange and put a star there and maybe it'll do something different and maybe it'll be what you want. Like w- right. when the new Asm syntax came in, I was I was ecstatic. That just blew my mind.
2: Yeah, I saw, a tweet, a I saw a tweet recently that somebody said like, if you show me some assembly written in gas syntax, I'm going to assume that you're a serial killer in your spare time. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's <only> it makes <laughs> sense. <laughs>
0: Uh, another one that I that happened I guess not too recently maybe earlier in the year, but um capture identifiers and format strings
1: do you use this Adam? this is where you can do like open curly name of variable close yes. curly. yeah I, yes. I, I, you know a, a colleague of ours John uh, John gallagher was was using that and I was like cool I didn't know you could do that so I, I didn't even know that this was relatively recent um, so I, yeah I've started using it it's really cool it's really cool and I like your cons generics
0: where you, I've got some residual shame over why I like captured identifiers so much format strings because I'm like, I am strung out addicted to build RS and (laughs) like I'm a hardened build. I mean, this is actually where you do, you know, Drew, you've been making it or your point that it's like, Rust blurs some of the boundaries. One of the boundaries that it blurs in a great way is the boundary between the build system and the artifact. And build RS lives in, in the this this kind of interstitial layer. And the ability to generate code programmatically has been to me has just been huge for programming of hardware software layer. And that's actually ends up being like a lot of format strings. And that ends up being a lot of variables and format strings. So it's like it's so- kind of a, Filthy use case, but it's been liberating. I,
2: I, I like this feature for an obscure reason, which is it's very similar to the way that you do it in Ruby, which you have a pound first and then the curlies to put a variable, to interpolate a variable there. Hmm. But back when I used to teach Ruby, I used to explain to people to help them remember the syntax that the curlies are like little crab pinchers that hold the variable in place in that part of the string. And so for that then to end up in Rust and the whole crabs thing like years later is like very satisfying to me. That's
6: awesome. Um, so A yeah. homecoming. I just, what,
0: yeah. what,
2: what are some of your little,
0: or actually, listen, I can see you. I'm getting there. Wait, do you have a, do you have a favorite? One yeah,
6: I have a small one that was recent. Um, arc new cyclic. Ooh, just, ooh. Okay, tell me about that one. It's just like you let you create an arc, and at creation time, you give it this closure that where you get the weak reference to it, so you can store it or whatever. So you can create these like self referential things much more easily. Without having to resort to a bunch of unsafe, like we were doing in purple. for a while. <laughs> so, what what are you using this for? Sometimes you just want to hold a weak reference to something that <laughs> is right. already held by <laughs> yeah. the strong reference.
0: All right. Why all the questions? I get yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, look, mom. He'll be he'll be home when he's home. Okay. So just like you know, <laughs> just get off. Yeah, friends. Sometimes just you friends. just need to do it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah, I had not. I. That's a good example. Of something that I, I that I knew. I, Everyone's
6: gonna yeah, have a favorite It's like 1.60, Okay, a couple months ago. Yes. Yeah, pretty You recent, know what's so yeah.
1: cool is like in the Rust docs, it tells you that, like 1.60, it puts it right next to it. I mean, th- there, there's so many nice things like that. Where if you went to it and said, why is this not working for me? It has it right there in the documentation. Like, why is it not working for you? And how you get to the version that does work. I, I love this thing.
6: Right, and a little so, older one is not needing to put extern crate blah everywhere. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. yeah. when huge. did that change? because that that's one of those things that i think i didn't even
0: notice had happened i think i just forgotten external crate and i was just no longer being yelled at by anybody and i
4: just that was 2018 and that was magical like actually real deterministic syntax for figuring out what is coming where with respect to a crate that was a game-changing feature for sure
2: there is a little extern crate in Hubris, still Brian, so you'll have to remember at some point briefly. You have to do it for Alec.
4: Like if you're implementing Alec yourself, then you're kinda of, you, you have to do extern crate Alec, but that's
1: kind of the only one I did.
6: You had to do it for macros for a while. Yeah. Right. That's that right. Was, I mean I remember doing 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 macros,
1: it for macros. I Yeah. So. I still bump into it with some older crates that are still doing it for macros, but <laughs> Steve, did you just step on a dog toy? That is a dog <laughs> yes, I did actually.
0: I did step <laughs> on a dog toy. Yep. I was like, this is doing nothing for my view of you having
2: a 1940 sound
0: effects reel. And i so, I'm waiting for like a clown horn. For it, those it, of you who don't
2: work at Oxide, I have this like program I run on my camera where it filters out everything behind me. So it only shows me. And so there's like a joke the other day when I had the dog, I like took that down or whatever. But it's like, oh, you can finally see what's in my apartment. So this is kind of like the opposite. Now everyone's like hearing what's in my apartment. Like, mapping it out. The CIA is I mapping am- out my apartment by the noise or whatever. I yeah, um, thought it was just how tea. excited
4: you were about not having to write external crate anymore.
2: <laughs> I definitely was psyched about it for sure. Uh, I have my list is a little strange because it's a it's a tooling feature and a not actually stabilized yet but should be soonish kind of feature that I will enjoy a lot. And then also a ridiculous analogy uh, back to the earlier bit about programming languages growing what a programming language means and Rust analyzer stuff. Uh, the thing that I, the, the biggest like small thing that's a big thing for me is Rust Up can now get link.exe on its own from Microsoft instead of you needing to go download the Visual Studio tools and install that. crap mm. yourself. That is like super, super clutch for people getting started on Windows because it's like the number one step that like you get wrong and it's like a big giant pain. And I don't even know how they did it because Microsoft doesn't distribute that stuff independently for whatever weird reason they do. But however they did it, I don't even care. It just it works now. So in the latest Rust-Up, if you install it on Windows, you don't need that additional download yourself. It knows how to make that happen, which is like real cool. Um, That's great. And actually,
0: I never would have thought that uh, the ability to, to write programs for Windows would be so load-bearing for myself. But at Oxide, because of the double E's in particular have a lot of tooling that is only on windows it has been i mean singularly valuable to be able to generate software that runs on windows so that's actually that's really important that's great to hear
2: yeah the uh the one that i think is like super maybe life-changing is a little wrong but i think is really awesome uh is not quite stabilized yet is the x86 interrupt abi so dan referenced xv6 before but like uh, classically, you know, x86 has a Perl script that generates the assembly that's the prologue and and uh, uh, afterward for all of your interrupt handlers. And like the way that's always been done since the, basically the beginning of time is to always push and you know pop the state that you the state for every register that could be possibly mangled by your interrupt handler because you know you don't necessarily want to think about exactly how that's going to be cogen general and all that stuff. But when you had the x86 interrupt ABI. Now you can just write a normal Rust function and it will like code gen for you. And it knows which registers it's using and not using. So it will only push and pop the stuff that you actually use based on the actual code gen of the stuff that you wrote. So it can actually be like more efficient and it's easier because you don't need to deal with like developing all that stuff yourself. You can just be like, this is an interrupt handler. Please make it callable appropriately for me, please. I think it's a really cool on like a thing that you maybe assumed couldn't be done by a compiler but like actually can and it's both easier and better which is like extra wild and awesome um, i'm gonna so.
4: actually push back on that I, I i and the reason why is that very often an in interrupt handler you want to manipulate the state that you're going to return to so you actually need like a mutable reference to a data structure or something that has all the contents of the registers on it so Usually, what you end up doing is creating some data structure in assembly language that you sort of push onto the top of the stack, and then you pass a pointer to that as an argument to the actual handler function. And it, like, I mean, I hear what you're saying, Steve, and I'm 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 I actually kind of apologize. I'm not trying to be you know, no, it's like a it's cool. about it. Um, but I just I I remember seeing that and I was like, oh, that's kind of nifty. And then I, I kind of thought about it and I was like, actually, it doesn't work for my use cases. So I've never, unfortunately, used it.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is the thing about this super low level stuff is that like, you know, it'll be useful for some people and not for others. Like, yeah, yeah, most of my most of my usage of that feature is like messing around with toy OSs. So I can, you know, not do those techniques. And so it's more meaningful for those kind of things, I think, than it is necessarily for everybody, for sure. And the RFC is in
0: the interrupt calling conventions RFC. Is that right? My yeah. Uh-huh. Thing. yeah. So that's from uh, Philip Oberman from who yeah. wrote the the blog OS. Um, yep. So that's that's interesting. That's, that's coming from. Um, cool. That's a, yeah. That's a, that. It, those are at opposite ends. I, I feel of the stack, Steve. In terms of your yes, <laughs> the the auto downloading. Definitely. Uh, the the
2: the silly yep. analogy thing is is I think. So it's like a little more than a programming language. And it's also to some degree about the, like, does it make you a better C programmer? I think that there is a deep affinity between Rust's viewpoint on the world and the way that the Dutch build roads, um, sure. which basically <laughs> I mean, is like, it's, it's so, okay, the way, do you know how we set speed limits in the U.S.? What we do is we like, we like send an intern out on a sunny day and we watch all the cars drive past and we knock off the top 15% and then that's the speed limit. So we like build a road and then we observe how people act and then we set the rules based on how they act, which is like a problem for safety because you get spaces that are designed purely for cars and car speeds and like all that kind of stuff and the detriment of everything else. The way the Dutch view building roads is they actually have a now they have a classification system where there's four different kinds of roads. I won't get into that thing. But the point is, is they look, they go, okay, this is a residential road and a residential street. Therefore, for safety reasons, we want cars to only go 25 miles an hour. Therefore, how do we design the road so that a driver will feel that 25 miles an hour is an appropriate speed to drive? And they don't even necessarily need to like look at the speed limit sign or like feel limited by the speed limit, it should just be the natural way that you drive. And so there's techniques and tools that you use to like make that happen when you're designing a road. We're, we're just we're, gonna make this road like shit scary at 30 miles an hour. Yeah, well you like put up a lot of trees along the side, you make the oh, lanes narrower. Like one of yeah. honestly one of the biggest differences we believe in the US that you make roads safer by making them wider. Turns out that means people feel more comfortable driving faster and it actually makes roads more uh, dangerous. Sure. So they'll actually make very narrow roads with like uh, speed bumps and stuff, sort of things like that. Uh, I could go on about this a long time, but it's not the Dutch road building meeting space or whatever. Uh, but Rust, Rust's attitude is like is like different in that uh, like more similar to that in that like we're gonna construct an environment where you don't have to think super hard all the time because humans are fallible and make mistakes and they get tired and they maybe drink a little bit and like you know, all these other things that happen. And if we can construct an environment where you can do stuff and a compiler will be like, no, 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 actually like, you know, I'm going to nudge you towards the right thing. It means you don't need to put as much cognitive load on these things that don't matter. And you can think about your problem a little bit more uh, as opposed to like necessarily needing to remember uh, like, cause when I go back to Ruby, for example, like now I'm like terrified because there's no thing that checks to tell me if what I'm doing is ridiculous. Like, I, when I write Rust right. I'm like not thinking that much because I know that the compiler has my back and so I rely on it like to to handle all these things that I don't get in other languages because we've created this environment in this way that guides you towards an appropriate you know part of the space. And so I think for me that's like it's not even so much that I like become a better programmer in other places it's just that I realize how much other languages are like, let's widen the roads to make it safer when that's like not actually the right way that you make things easier for programmers. Like Giving people ultimate amounts of choice really ends up meaning they drown in thinking about all the details too much whenever what we really need is to like create a thing that will get you to do the right thing without needing to think about everything all the time.
4: Okay, yeah. I, have to, I have to jump in here because this really brings home something for me that, that it, I think is a, is a big deal, especially in the systems programming community there is just too much gatekeeping, And I think so much of that is based on kind of the corollary to what Steve just said. It's this idea that people can keep all that complexity in their head with languages like C and C++. And therefore they are somehow better qualified than the people who are mere mortals like myself who just can't.
0: Yeah. And,
4: yeah and so therefore they look at a language like Rust and it lacks, I, I'm, I'm, you know, the machismo or whatever you want to call it. Of a language like C where they're like, look, you know, I, I can I understand undefined behavior and I've read every word of you know the C11 spec and I can apply it this you know, forwards, backwards, and sideways. Therefore, I am better at doing this than you are. And I feel like that is a huge, huge barrier to entry to say doing kernel development. And I'm actually really glad that Rust takes the opposite approach, the kind of like, no, let's make the roads narrower. And let's kind of, you know, decrease the surface area with which you can cut yourself because it turns out that's actually really important. And you I think do. that that's going to yeah. democratize things and make it easier for people to get involved. Totally. And
0: then the compiler can actually help you a lot. That's to me is like the big I, – I did not think – and Adam, just as you said, you didn't feel you could love again. Um, maybe those weren't your exact words. No, that's
1: how it was. Yeah. <laughs> or even love for the first time. But yeah.
0: <laughs> um, the but I felt that like the compiler was just always was a burden. It was not something was something to be dealt with, not something that could actually help me write better software. And Dan, just to your point of like that's what rust does and uh, steve just you might not have seen it uh dan had a, had a tweet during our conversation that i think is pretty interesting about when he thought the chasm was crossed and i Dan, i think this is a very good point the hard copy publication of both the rust programming language and programming rust which yeah. it, 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 that was really and i remember buying both of those at the same time and reading both of them and i totally agree that that's a good point about the, the chasm being crossed then
4: when we were advocating for switching Hyperion to be written on Rust from C++ at Google, we had to write a document to justify that. I mean, that was an extraordinarily controversial decision. And so myself and the you know, and the tech lead sat down and we wrote this doc. And that was one of the big data points. And I was like, look, people have committed to putting these words onto dead trees. That means that this <laughs> language... No, I'm, I'm totally serious. I mean, that means that this language has reached a point of maturity where people are basically betting that it's not going to change that much in the future. And that means that it's going to be relatively stable for us to program against. And that was huge.
2: It, It also is huge for the book market because after people saw how well both of those books did, uh, that was also why you see this, like a year or two later, a giant explosion in the amount of books that were written on rust because everybody went out and bought both books and, like, people looked at that and were like, oh, holy crap. Okay, this is a real thing. And, therefore, publishers started soliciting more authors and, like, all that kind of stuff. So, it definitely, it was, uh, yeah, totally. That's cool. Big moment.
5: I'm um, also thinking of John's book that came out in the past year. Yes. The, oh, yeah. Uh, that, so the, good. That, uh, Rust, for Rust for Rustations. Yeah, that one is um, absolutely phenomenal.
0: Okay. I, you know, I have not read that yet, and I'm going to, I'm buying that now. Um, Ooh,
5: that. You definitely the, should. Like, Yeah. Like sitting down for a bit, like so. So actually, here's I'm I'm actually so so, so as everyone was talking, I I switched back to listening mode for a second. I was like, well, what was like the I, I'm trying to remember like 2018 because that's when I started writing, and or, or 2019, early 2019, and I think it was actually John who's Twitch streams no. I found. I was like in the programming section because I was like watching just random things on Twitch. And I was like, oh, you can like watch people program. I think that's pretty cool. And and then it's kind of cool to see that come full circle. I don't know if anyone else here, um, feel free to chime in if any of you have seen his streams, but they're pretty sweet.
2: I've heard many people express that opinion. I personally haven't watched them, but I really like the way that John teaches stuff and I'm sure they're great, yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I'm sorry, I can't talk. Ordering book, I, I'm, no, I, 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 I'm literally ordering the book right now. And unlike you know normally, I'm I am I'm, I'm being a skin flint and you know spending a dollar ninety eight for a used book. This one's I'm buying new, baby. This one. You, you and me both,
1: and I'm expensing it.
0: <laughs> I'm excited to get That's why I'm buying it new. <laughs> I feel, I, I, I feel like I can't make Pierre de Mon pay for like the 15th history of tandem that I'm buying. But you know, actually, uh, the, the rest of the I feel we can put on the company's nickel. Um,
6: but you know, like speaking of those videos, the one that I always go back to is the atomic and memory ordering one because it is so well explained. I mean, it's just that. It's like, I feel like it's really hard to get those subtle details right. So every so often, I'll just like rewatch like the relevant part. And it's like so well explained and definitely elevated my understanding of them. And this, and this is, is a twist. Twist.
3: Ooh, Ooh, I think you can watch it on myself.
6: YouTube. Like it was definitely live stream, but you can watch like, you know, the VOD of it. Yeah, John, yeah,
5: John. Uh, he, he switched to doing, like, Crust of Rusts, and I think they're, like, a little shorter format, and they get re-uploaded to YouTube. Someone, Dude, can, someone can correct me I'm wrong. From wrong. I yeah, I would like short.
6: Long. It's, like, two and a half hours.
5: <laughs> yeah. that's yeah, still two long.
0: That's awesome. That's definitely something to check out. Um, th- ben, you, th- I know you were looking to get in here a little while ago.
8: Yeah, um, among the the recent features that that hit home, I I feel like I have a a, a niche one and a more common one. Um. um... Hey, hey, when, <laughs> you're when you're unmuted, we're getting we're
1: getting some, we're getting echo, some from echo from you.
8: So uh, the in in searching for uh, UB in various published crates, I found uh, Rayon and ProtoBuf were doing uh, invalid. Out of bounds get unchecked in order to access the uninitialized region of a VEC between the length and capacity. And that, that seemed interesting. <laughs> yeah. um, especially because the, the valid way to do this in Rust used to be a little bit complicated. At least, especially for for what rayon was doing, right? When I when I raised this with the the rayon authors, they said, "Oh, you know, we actually want to have a slice to that region. We want to make sure that the lifetime is correct." And so they they didn't just want to use pointer arithmetic directly from the from the pointer in the vec. And so there was an unstable API to do this, right? Spare capacity, mud. And so I just commented on the tracking issue and. I was apparently the only one who'd really noticed that there was a lot of need for this, and it just got stabilized pretty quickly after that, which was which was really interesting.
0: That's awesome. That, that was really satisfying too to when be like, hey, I was able to kind of connect these to get, connect this kind of effort over here with the need over there and help make it happen.
8: Yeah, it was it was one of those experiences where I'm I'm not sure if people knew that they needed this. And now I'm, now I'm wondering how much we'll be able to get people to actually uh, use it. But I'm, I'm hoping that people find it in the docs when they're actually looking. Um,
0: and the, the, this is, you said it's, and I, I'm also going to reveal that I think maybe, I, I mean, it's a common theme that I mispronounce <laughs> things. But I say mute when I read it aloud. Oh, and
1: I,
8: I do too. In, you do too? I, mm-hmm. I, I go back and forth, honestly. <laughs>
1: Good. We'd only be wrong half the time. <laughs> <laughs> is this like Rust's cube cuddle versus
8: cube CTL? Is whether. Or, <laughs> okay. Oh, no, no. Okay. We got to talk about this. You got me started on cuddle, and nobody else that I have talked to says that. It says it is cuddle. cuddle. Sorry. Yeah. This is.
4: I'll oh, pulling the NX card here. This dates back like 19. Yeah.
0: Are we talking. When you say, like, I personally got you started on that because I. Yeah. Oh boy! I, I I realized that um the, I had the uh, I was in a the Changelog podcast a, a week and a half ago and someone said you know what I realized after listening to this podcast that I've been mispronouncing the word N A D I R and I'm like no, no no wait actually stop before I think I may be mispronouncing it how do you pronounce <laughs> that word Steve Nadir? Do you? Is it because of me or did you make?
2: It, it, no i just that's what it looks like it should be that's a little how it looks to me i don't think i've ever heard you say it okay oh
0: god thank god god bless you i if this is just part of the 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 larger intervention around fold and map and fold that's fine um yeah i do say nadir but
4: adam you say nader that's right sorry, sorry. Brian's in Brian's in the clear here. It is Nadine. <laughs> Brian's
0: in the clear. Dan, Dan is Neater. weighing. In. All right. Oh, benevolent Dan. Wave, please wave the hearts of the those before you. Um are, maybe you can pronounce it either way. So I don't know. Kind of, I think you gotta put it in, in the maybe in the other either bucket. <laughs> um but I do say mute when I am reading Rust aloud to myself. Adam, do you say
1: mutt or mute? I try to avoid it entirely by not having anything be mutable.
0: Oh, aren't <laughs> you a saint? Well, from the high ivory
1: tower of Mappy Foldy. Don't, don't need to <laughs> declare a variable as mutable if you don't declare
2: any variables. Exactly. Birthday,
0: so. Aren't you a saint? Shouldn't we all live like Adam and never use the keyword? Adam's like, is that even a keyword? I don't even know.
1: <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> It's a new language feature I've never seen. Is this what we're talking about? Did I just add this?
5: There is definitely this like addicting element to like start using closures and pattern matching. And it's like, I wonder how few statements I can write. I'm not sure if anyone else has ever gotten that sort of power trip before. But it's happened a few times and totally unnecessary too. I'm just like, I just wonder how far we can go down this road. I, I well, feel
4: like I feel like like Rust programmers go through these stages when they first start out. It's like you start out fighting the borrowing checker, which you know is something of a controversial statement, I believe, but everybody kind of goes through that. And then it's like, oh wow, traits are so cool. Let's use them everywhere. Yeah. The traits like, gone wild. Are the,
5: these are, yes.
4: Yeah. Yeah, and then it's like, what are the other neat features of the language that I can use? And then after uh, I don't know, I want to say like six months to a year people start writing pretty reasonable code that starts to seem idiomatic but it's de- like it definitely takes a while to come up to speed and and become like a proficient idiomatic rust Yeah
0: and I I feel like also at least early on I feel I needed cliff to bless some of the things that I was doing as there's not a better way to do this. I feel like with rust it, it, rust is constantly driving you to think is there a better way of doing this? And it, it can be helpful from an experienced rustation to be like actually that's basically that's pretty good
6: yeah, there's no, a blog it's... post
2: i can't remember that's like about stages of somebody writing a programming like like and they they show them writing like it, i think it's a Lisp like they like write like and then they just learn haskell's they write that function this way and then they learn ruby and they write it that way and it's like showing different styles of programming uh but i cannot remember what the name of it is whatsoever
4: there's one where like the haskell programmer discovers point point o arithmetic and things of this nature and then like at the and then and it's like writing hello world or something and then like at the end they get back to the original program written and it's like oh wow that really simple program is actually pretty much the way that you do it
0: totally hey i want to get to a small feature that adam i discovered in looking at what small
1: features i might have missed just in preparation for today nice cargo ad have you seen this yeah, I did see that recently, and it because and it, it adds it to the cargo Toml. Yes, it gets the recent It's the version. best. It and is you, the best, and you don't have to sully yourself with like opening an editor, <laughs> right, or any of that stuff. That
3: was actually you know, going
2: to be on my list originally, and then I forgot because I didn't write my list down. But that's so pivotal. I've wanted it for so long. I'm so glad that E Page was able to put in so much work to make that happen because it was
0: great. Yeah, it's th- that scene. And that's like one of those things that I'm sure was like a bit gnarly to actually do, honestly, because it's kind of rewriting, you know, it's rewriting oh, yeah. one of the files that you got. And, uh, but it's the, I'm, that one I have not used yet because I only discovered it, you know, 15 minutes before we started. But I'm definitely putting that one to the list. Another one that for me, I love, Steve, and I, I don't know what your take is on uh, links in Rust doc, I actually find really valuable. Um, that's
5: yeah, a good one. Yeah, that's not that that's old. really oh, important. Took a, took a lot of
2: discussion. So good. Um, so, for, but, forgive me for interrupting my bad no i was just saying unfortunately i need to go because it's getting yeah, a late yeah I, 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 so. I,
0: I, I, which is a great segue we we are i we're, we we definitely want to wrap i know we've gone on a, a bit long um the uh absinthe party um he, he, do you want
2: to yeah it's amazing um i was i think uh, two things i was say really quick I, I think you mean kyle kingsbury's typing the technical interview that's definitely related it's not the one i'm Uh, thinking of but it's definitely a similar one it's very good and anyway everybody should go read that for sure absolutely yeah yeah um anyway i was just gonna say obviously the the rust links as well is uh to me really huge uh because also the documentation in rust is a big thing to make people understand like why this language i think it's just another reason why it showcases like oh like we're doing this you can actually read about what's happening there's really good docs a lot of languages kind of suffer from really great documentation so uh, I okay. definitely do. I,
0: I'm I'm sorry to take the wind out of your sails, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you're going to say the same thing. I actually really, I love Rustock. Um, I know Adam, you've used it a ton um, and made great use of it in, in oh, Australia yeah. and elsewhere. Um, so it, it uh, it's a terrific attribute of the language. Well, this has been uh, Steve. Thank you so much for joining us, Steve Lukman. Yeah, thanks for having uh, me. It's great. The, the, I, I, I mean, you you two have obviously been in this community a lot longer than, than, than we have and have got a lot of longevity here and, and great perspective, but um, honestly, it's been so great that Rust, I think unlike so many things I use where updates are something to kind of dread because they're going to break things, I, it's like wrapped presents under the tree on Christmas morning and waking up at like five in the morning to go unwrap them. It's really exciting to move to the winds. Yeah. So
2: it's going to be 10 years for me in December. So I'm finally going to be able to answer all those job ads that need 10 years of Rust experience. <laughs> <laughs> <You're> exactly. <laughs> nice. Awesome.
0: Well, hey, Adam, thanks for the tweet, too. That, that, that got us kickstarted on oh, this yeah. one. And, so and, one. And in the end of the movie, did your heart grow three times as large? You to <laughs> at, at least. At least. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Thanks, everyone. Um, we're gone next week, uh, but we'll be back in two weeks. Um, I'm looking forward. we got a, a guest lined up for two weeks. So I'm looking forward to that one. All right. Thanks, Thanks, everyone. everyone. Talk to you later. Peace.